My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilden Hills Church. And it's so, so really good to be in the presence of God and to be with all you folks, to come together in the weekend just to worship God and celebrate. To be reminded of the fact that you're a friend of God, the God of this universe, creator of every molecule and the billions and billions and billions of stars. He's your friend. He's your friend. I'm a friend of God. And so you got to let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You got to say so and rise up. Oh, I love that stuff. This is good. We have a, oh, by the way, I didn't forget, my, I didn't lose my, my mug. I did not lose my mug. Just so you, you know, some of you are out there wondering, what happened to you? You finally lost it. I didn't. I just got tired of hearing complaints by the podcaster saying, I can hear that clog every time you drink. I, I would drink out of it and go clog. And they were right. It was kind of, you know, so I'm now converting to the sippy cup uh, where you can drink and you can't hear a thing. So podcasters, this, is for, this one's for you. Bottoms up. See, you didn't hear a clog. Thank you. Should have taken my Ritalin this morning. I'm entitling this message, The Danger of Goodness, and we're continuing our study of the book of Luke. We're up to chapter 18. The first part of our service, we just worship God. The second part is a seminar where we do kingdom training. And so we just study the Bible, and now we're up to Luke 18. We're going to talk about this rich guy who comes to Jesus and asks a very important question. So Luke 18, and we're starting with verse 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. But since you asked that question, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony and honor your father and mother, etc., etc. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said with a proud smile. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, Well, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, then who can possibly be saved? Jesus answered, what is impossible with human beings is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to, to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Pray with me here for a moment. Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium who's hearing this message and every person who's hearing it uh, through podcast or through some other means. And I pray, God, that you, Holy Spirit, would open our ears and minds and hearts to receive your word, to dig deeply into your word, maybe past the obvious, the deep things of God, and to allow them to come into our life and be transformed by them. But God, we know all too well that human speech does not do that. Uh, God, only you. It's impossible for us, impossible for us to be saved on our own ingenuity, our own effort. But with you, all things are possible. So Lord, we look to you to open our hearts and open our minds to build the kingdom in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. 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 As I have said a number of times, I think, uh, it's always good when you're reading the Bible uh, to let yourself have questions. 
Because very frequently it's the case that the real good stuff lies just behind the question. And you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta look for it. You gotta wrestle with it. The Lord wants to be sought. Sometimes he, he puts things in ways that you gotta, it's not obvious. You gotta work through it. That's why it's important to love God with all your mind. Use your mind as you go to the word. And so, so let's ask some questions. Let's start with the questions. I got a couple. Guy comes to Jesus and says, good teacher. And Jesus responds by saying, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God. What's up with that? Really, honestly, I mean, that, if I'm honest, it's always good to be honest with people and God. That sounds a little bit snobbish to me, like religious snubbery. It sounds a little bit pedantic. There's only one good, that is God. I mean, think about it. Is this a new rule Jesus is giving us here? We're never allowed to call anything or anyone good except for God? That could get irritating. I say, Wendell, man, you are a good drummer. And Wendell goes, oh, there's only one good, and that is God. It's like, knock it off. I'm trying to give you a compliment here, all right? You know, it's a... Uh, little Johnny's out on the baseball field and he hits, gets a hit and you go, good job, Johnny! And Johnny goes, oh no, Father, there's only one good and that is God. I mean, that could get really irritating after a while. That is a good dinner. Oh, there's only one good, that is God. Uh, it, it, it really comes across as kind of snobbish. You know, just come on. What's going on here? And what, what tops it, you know, what really is weird is that Jesus himself calls things and people good sometimes. For example, in Matthew 5, he gives this very important teaching where he says, Love your enemies and bless those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, the, the, the point of that passage, of course, is that if we want to be children of the Father, we have to love like the Father, and the Father loves like the sun shines and the rain falls. It's indiscriminate. And so we're, we're to uh, love without any consideration for the relative merit of the people that we are loving. Our love is to be unconditional and universal without exception. But what interests me about this passage this morning is that Jesus here says that the sun shines on the good and the evil. <gasps> Jesus, you, you call some people good. There's only one good and that is God. You taught us that. You know, you're breaking your rule, Jesus. So what, what, what's Jesus getting at here with this, there's only one good uh, and that's God. Don't call me good teacher. That's question number one. Here's another question. The guy wants to know how to gain eternal life. And Jesus says, well, let's start with the commandments. You know, don't, don't, don't cheat. Don't lie. Love your mom and dad. Don't commit adultery. Have you checked off all the Ten Commandments? And the guy, of course, says, yeah, yeah, I got that done. Now, what's up with this? Is Jesus suggesting that the way to, eternal, way to inherit eternal life is by keeping the Ten Commandments, that that is sort of the, uh, the behavior way into heaven. That seems odd. If there's anything we've seen in the pattern of Jesus' ministry as we've been studying the book of Luke, it's that the hyper-commandment keepers are the ones who are against Jesus, and the ones who tend to receive the kingdom are those who are the commandment breakers, the sinners, those who know that they're lost without God's grace. So how can Jesus here be telling us or suggesting to this guy, at least, that the way to enter into eternal life is by keeping the Ten Commandments. What about the tax collector that we, we studied just a few weeks ago, a few verses ago? Uh, remember the tax collector and the Pharisee, and the Pharisee's in the synagogue, and he's praying, and 
he's happy with the fact that he keeps all the commandments and he's a righteous dude and he thanks God that he's not like these other people, like the tax collector. No, he prays and he, he, he fasts and he tithes and he keeps the rules. And the tax collector is too unworthy to even go into the temple or even lift his head towards heaven. He just smites his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, the tax collector, rather than the Pharisee, went home justified. He was in on the kingdom, but the rule keeper wasn't. So what's up with this deal that if you just keep the Ten Commandments, you know, that's how you get into the kingdom? And then we haven't even talked about Paul. Paul tells us that the, the law was given there to, to drive us to Christ because the law can't justify you. It's a shadow of things to come. It's really a negative object lesson. Uh, it, it shows us that we can't be righteous by standing on our own thinking we can keep all the rules. So what is Jesus up to here? What gives with this? I think Jesus is he's sensing something with this guy. He's got an agenda. He's up to something here. That's not necessarily really obvious. And finally, uh, Jesus adds to the commandment list. The guy says, okay, I've checked all those off. I'm good to go. I'm good to go. Checked all those off. And Jesus, you know, I can see him going, bravo. Hey, all right, we're on a roll here. One more thing. I think he's got some kind of inside information from the father. You know, he's got a word of knowledge about this guy, that this guy is very wealthy, and he likes it. So Jesus says, okay, well, if you really want to enter into, into eternal life, one more thing, just one. Uh, and that is, I, I want you to go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then come and follow me. And the guy was really sad because he couldn't do that. Just, he liked his stuff too much. Now, what is up with this? Is this like the new rule? Is this the... the the, the major item on the checklist that you have to check off if you want to make sure that you're going to enter into eternal life. That's strange. Jesus has never talked about this before. If, if this is the key to salvation, to inherit eternal life, why is this the first time we're hearing about it? I mean, talk to a lot of people uh, and ministered to a lot of people and even welcomed a lot of people into the kingdom, but he never brought this up before. And he never brings it up afterwards. In fact, we see that a lot of his disciples didn't sell everything and give it to the poor. They kept their houses. They had some possessions uh, and, and things of that sort. In fact, in the next chapter, which we might get to next year, I think, or something, but in chapter 19, Zacchaeus, you know the story about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus is here, and he was a tax collector and a sinner, and he repented. And then he, when Jesus comes into town, he says, you know, Jesus, I give half of all my uh, earnings to the poor. Half. And Jesus doesn't go... What are you holding out on me for, buddy? Cough it up, man. I want the other half. He doesn't do that. He commends Zacchaeus. Well, that's not fair. Zacchaeus gets by with half. This guy's got to give the whole thing. What's up with this? See, I think Jesus is on to something here uh, with this guy uh, that you can't universalize and apply to all people at all times. There's a point he's getting at here. And the point I think he's getting at here, among other things, this is a very rich passage. I may even talk about, about it again next week. I don't know. But the central thing, I think, is that he's trying to blow apart this man's, what I would call a legal paradigm. A legal paradigm. A paradigm is really the framework within which you make sense of the world. Your, your ultimate gestalt. Uh, it, it's the lenses you wear as you look at the world that, that allow you to interpret the world. That's your paradigm. And this guy had, like many Jews of the first century, a legal paradigm. And what I mean by that is this. The way he thought about his relationship with God and God's relationship with the world was in, in legal terms. 
he construes everything as though it was taking place in a court of law. And in this court, God is the judge, of course, and you are the defendant. And in this court, the key, the key question you're asking yourself as the defendant, I don't know if you've ever been defend, uh, a defendant, but it's rather nerve-wracking because the judge has such power over you. And what you want to know is, what do I say to get off the hook? What is required of me here? What are the rules? What's the stipulation? What do I need to say and do to be acquitted? And what must I avoid saying and doing to come under condemnation? Because I want to be a free citizen and walk out the door and not go into prison. It's a paradigm that this guy has as he's thinking about God's relationship with the world. God is the judge, we are the defendant. And what we want to know is, God, what do you want? What are the rules? What must I do? What must I not do? What must I say? What must I pray to be acquitted and not condemned? It's a legal paradigm. Jesus, I think, wants to blow that sky high. It's a paradigm, I submit to you, that is widespread in contemporary Christianity, especially contemporary evangelical Christianity. I think many people, the primary way they think about God is in a court of law. And there's the judge, and here we are, the defendant. And what we want to know is, what are the rules? What do I got to do to be acquitted? Now, what you're told you need to do to be acquitted will vary depending on who you talk to. But usually it has some kind of flavor like this. Uh, you know, if you, you got to believe these three central orth keys to orthodoxy, or four or five, depending on who you talk to. You got to believe these things, because when you get to heaven, there'll be a litmus test. They're going to ask you a theology quiz. If you get it wrong, you're out. So you, you got these three things. You know, and it could be believe in Jesus, the Trinity, the inspiration of the Bible, or they could add, uh, you got to be a young earth creationist, or they could add, you got to have the right eschatology, be pre-tribulation or whatever. And it's amazing sometimes the things you find that can prevent you from being acquitted. Uh, were the right words said over you when you were baptized? Were you baptized with the right mode? And all these things are deal breakers. The judge is a very austere judge. He wants it just right. With eternal consequences if you don't get it just right. So you've got to believe the right things. And then you've got to do the right things. And usually that starts at least with a, the right prayer. You pray this prayer and boom, you're acquitted. Okay, it's a court of law. We want to be acquitted. And then we want to know what are the, well, what are the requirements for staying acquitted. Can you get de-acquitted? Can, can the acquittal be revoked? Can you lose your salvation? I get that question all the time. What are the deal breaker sins? Like, like, okay, uh, if, if I, if, if I, if, if I uh, fornicate, am, am I, if I cross the line and now it's, it's removed, how about if I just think about it in my head? Do I lose my salvation if I do that? Do I lose my salvation if I have the wrong view of the age of the earth and interpretation of Genesis or eschatology or whatever? Uh, will I be, will I lose my salvation if I, you know, have this unforgiveness in my life? Will I, and we're looking for the rules to get in and the rules for getting out. What are the deal breaker sins? And depending on the holy club that you've just joined, they all have their deal-breaker sins. It's always the ones that they don't commit. <laughs> uh, you're okay getting in here, you know, if, if uh, you, you struggle with gossip and, and greed and gluttony and the rest, the stuff the Bible talks a lot about. But man, if you're gay, you're out. I mean, it's, yeah, they have this hierarchy here. It has nothing to do with the Bible, but, but there's this, you know, the kind of the, the, the legal court system. They got their own court of law. And what gets you in and what gets you out? What do you got to do? And even the way we construe what Jesus did for us is largely in legal terms. And you find legal terms in the Bible. I'm not denying that at all. But these become sort of paradigmatic, uh, the, the key to which we understand everything. So Jesus, you know, we, we think of him as sort of this, like, like, like God the Father wants to send us to hell and condemn us. But Jesus, our lawyer, comes in and says, no, don't do it that way. And he finds a legal loophole. And we get in on the legal loophole if we just say the right prayer and do the right things and, and join the holy club. It's pervasive. 
But God, I think, in this, in this passage, as quite frequently in the New Testament, wants to blow apart that legal paradigm. Because here's the thing, folks. Uh, yeah, God, God wants to declare us justified and acquitted. But God didn't create the world to have a bunch of acquitted criminals. That's not his best plan for your life. God created the world and Jesus died not for a bunch of acquitted criminals, but rather for a bride, the Bible says. He wants a bride. He wants a bride. Somebody getting out of prison is a good thing. Yeah, you've been acquitted, been forgiven. That's great. But that, if I marry them, something distinctly different just happened. <laughs> There's a qualitative difference. God, he doesn't want a legal relationship with us. What he wants is a love relationship with us, a passionate relationship with us. He wants us to be the bride of Christ. He created the world to have a people who receive freely his free love, who reflect back to him his free love, a people that he pours his whole self into, and a people who pour their whole self into him. Uh, he wants a, a, a relationship with, with a group of people who see his beauty and love his beauty, are motivated by his beauty, are transformed by his beauty. They dance in his beauty. They share in his ecstasy. They share in his joy. And they do it throughout eternity. That's the plan of creation. And it goes way beyond simply being an acquitted criminal. What's well, a love relationship? In fact, you can't get into that love relationship so long as you're uh, hovering over here in the acquittal thing. You may fear that judge and you want to do just the right thing. Tell me the right thing to do. But you're not going to be passionately in love with that judge and falling in love with his beauty and grace and whatnot. To get into the marriage paradigm, you've got to get out of the legal paradigm. And so Jesus wants to blow this guy's legal paradigm apart. The best way to do that is to out-legalize the legalist. And Jesus does this all the time. He, he, he says, you, you want to play that game? We'll drive you in the ground. So the guy comes and says, good teacher. Oh, thanks for the compliment, dude. Is that what I am to you? Uh, in your little grid, I come out okay. Thanks for the compliment. But what's your relationship with God? What do you think of God and his goodness? He's already starting to push back a little bit here. And then he says, well, okay, you want to play that game, the climb the ladder of goodness a game, the legality game? Okay, well, let's start. I'm a Jew, you're a Jew. Well, we'll start with the Ten Commandments. We all know that. So are you honoring your mother and father? Are you avoiding adultery and yada, 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 yada? And the guy, of course, says, well, yeah, yeah, man, okay, good. Huh? Ooh, I was worried there a little bit, you know, because you look kind of like the Messiah. You're doing these miracles, whatever. I, I was pretty sure I had my bases covered, but I wanted to check it out with you. So I'm really glad that uh, I, now I've got my assurance. I'm winning in the legality game. And Jesus, I'm sure, sort of pats him on the back, says, good job. Oh, one more thing, please. Uh, go and sell everything you've got, everything, and give it to the poor. You want to you want to climb that ladder? It's it's a, it's a taller ladder than maybe you thought. Climb the ladder, get up there, and so you go sell everything, give it give away, and then then come back to me. Of course, the man is very sad because he likes his stuff a lot and does not want to do that. And for the first time in his life, I suspect he's losing in the legality game, the legal paradigm game. But I honestly believe that if the guy would have done that for the purposes of checking off one more thing on the list, and come back and said, "Oh Jesus, that was." Really hard. Oh, Jesus, that was hard. Um, but, um, uh, you know, uh, I did it. I did it. Am I okay now? I suspect if Jesus would have seen that his motivation was to check off another little good deed, Jesus would have said, oh, good job. I'm proud of you. 
Okay, now comes the really hard stuff, okay? Because that was all external behavior. Now we got to start working on the inside stuff, which is more interesting. So it's really not a matter of have you ever committed adultery, but have you ever thought about it? Do you ever find yourself lusting at people? Because as I taught in Matthew 5, you're in danger of hell if you do. And as long as we're at this game, you know, it's not really enough that you didn't murder somebody. I mean, that's good, really. But, but, but have you ever thought about it? Do you ever say rock to people, call them a fool, call them an idiot, jerk, whatever? Do you ever harbor anger and unforgiveness? Because if you do, you're in danger of hellfire. And as long as we're at this game, because it's so fun, um, you know, Matthew 12, you might have heard me teach that every single idle word you're going to speak, every useless word that comes out of your mouth, you're going to give an account thereof on the day of judgment. Uh, you know, the game's really starting to warm up and get fun now. And see, what Jesus is trying to do is to drive this guy, the logic of his paradigm, into the ground so that he might possibly get to the point where the tax collector was 10 verses ago when he says, I can't do it on my own. Have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And now we can start talking because now you're in a position where you can enter the marriage paradigm and get out of the legal paradigm. That's what Paul's getting at all the time when he says the law does not justify. It, it requires a totally different kind of a heart to be married to God than it does to have a legal relationship with God. And see, if this guy could have done that, and at this time he was sad, maybe later on, you know, God never gives up. He keeps working in people's hearts. But if this man could have just come to the end of himself, and says, you know, it's impossible for me to be saved. You could have heard Jesus say, well, with God, everything's possible. And will you just lean on that? Will you just trust in the character of God? Will you just surrender everything to God? And if, man, if this man could have come to the end of himself, folks, I'm convinced that he would have begun to see a very different God. He would have had a, 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 a he'd start to grow in a perception of a, of a totally different God other than this austere judge that you have to always just fear. He would have begun to realize, maybe fast, maybe slow, I don't know, but that God is a, a, is a beautiful God. And the motivation he really wants for our relationship with him is not one of fear and, and, and uh, in a retentive rule keeping, but rather what he wants is a people who are compelled by love and who are won over by his beauty. And, and he would have maybe begun to see that Jesus is a whole lot more than just a good teacher, that in Jesus, God himself is present on earth. And he would have gradually begun to realize that God is the kind of God you talk about a judge. This is a kind of God who comes down from the courtroom, if you will, comes down into earth, takes on our humanity, takes on the burden of our sin, enters into the judgment of the powers on all sin, dies on Calvary. Why? Because he's passionately in love with these, these sinful little human beings, but he doesn't want to go into eternity without them. This man could have begun to realize that God's been chasing him. He thinks he's been earning the points all of his life, but God, in fact, has been chasing him all of his life. That God's a pursuing God, an outrageous loving God, a God who will do and has done everything possible in the universe to have a reconciled relationship with us. And now, and now, see, and now his motivation would have been not, what must I do? What's the right things to believe and do? The motivation rather would have been, I'm in love. I'm in love. I'm a friend of God. I'm a friend of God. I've been redeemed. God is, 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 is his beauty, and the beauty has won me over. And I guarantee you, if he would have been won over by the beauty of God, not only would he have done the good things he was already doing, he would do a whole lot more than that. Because fear will motivate you so far. Merit will motivate you so far. But when you, get, when you start drinking of the outrageous, unfathomable, incomprehensible, beautiful love of God, there's no cap on it. There's no cap on it. And that's the kind of relationship God wants with us. You see, when it comes to entering into the kingdom, it's really not a question of what must I do. 
there are some behavioral things, but they flow out of a more fundamental issue. And that is, who am I? Who am I? What kind of person am I? What kind of person am I becoming? Because we're all in process on this. And that's totally related to the question of, who am I related to? What is my relationship with God? What is the orientation of my heart? Is it towards God or is it towards self-lordship? That's the fundamental question. And, and, and uh, uh, the question is, are you the kind of person who is moving towards this marriage relationship with God or are you the kind of person who is being blocked from it, maybe because of the legal paradigm or maybe just because of the stubbornness of your heart? What God wants is a relationship with us that is mirrored most closely in the marriage relationship where we leave and cleave. You know the Genesis story, right? Uh, here's what marriage is. You leave, you leave all your past, your identity as a single person, you leave your family, and you cleave to one another. That's what marriage is. It could be the case that a few in-laws in this room or listening through podcasts need to hear a sermon that I could easily preach right now about the importance of leaving. They leave, which means you leave them alone. <laughs> if they ask for your help, fine. Otherwise, keep your nose out of their business. Man, I've seen a lot of marriages screwed up because the in-laws just can't let go. Let them go. And married couples, you got to get out of there. Mr. Johnny, you are no longer mommy's little boy. You belong to your wife now. Leave. And you leave and cleave. And what God wants is a, a different sermon. I'll, I'll come back to that sometime later. Because <laughs> someone back there is going, come on, preach some more, preach some more. I need that sermon right now. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Mother-in-law, listen. <laughs> Just download the sermon and play that part about a hundred times. <laughs> they leave and cleave, so you leave them alone. Unless they ask for help. But see, God wants us to have the kind of relationship where won over by his beauty, what he's done for us, we get out of the legal paradigm, but we leave the world. We leave all the false idols, all the false ways of getting life, all the past lovers, and we cleave to him as our only, as our only hope, as our only source of life, as our, the source of our worth, our well-being, and our security. That's the kind of relationship God wants. But to get there, we've got to get out of the legal paradigm, and we've got to leave to cleave. You can't serve two masters, Jesus always tells us. Now, there's one advantage, one huge advantage to the flesh, our fallen kind of inclinations. There's one huge advantage to the legal paradigm. And that is that you don't need to leave in order to cleave. The, in, the, in the legal paradigm, uh, here's the thing. If you have a checklist, what do I got to do? And if you're the kind of person that can benefit from this, man, you, you, you got a good show going. You just check off the things that are required of you. If you can convince yourself, and some people can't do this very well, but others are pretty good at it. You convince yourself that these are, in fact, the five things you got to believe, that these are the, 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 the things you got to do, and you check them off. And if you can really convince yourself that you've checked it off, now you're good to go. So you just get on with your life. You don't have to leave anything else. You, you can go back, and, and, and your life can pretty much go on unchanged because you've done the checklist. And there may be a minimal amount of things you got to do to stay acquitted or something like that. So you go to church now and then, and you pray a little bit, and whatever, the, you know, whatever the, 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 the shtick is that you bought into. But you can have the assurance, and now you get to go on with your life as it was before. See, this is what the, 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 rich, the rich guy wanted. He has a good life, very wealthy, got the servants, got the nice you know, Rolls Royce, whatever the equivalent would be back in the first century. What he wants is the, cake, the icing on the cake. I, you know, on top of all this, I want eternal life. And, and so he wants to say to Jesus, have I done the checklist all right? I just want to be reassured. And Jesus upsets the whole show, of course, by saying no. You know, there's no security in that whatsoever. But if you can convince yourself, 
that you've done it, well, now you're, you're good to go. Whereas if you get married, here's another sermon I could preach. But when you get married, yeah, there's, there's certain kind of checklists. You know, you have your agreements with one another. But it's not a checklist kind of a deal. Uh, it, it, it's not like you go into a marriage and say, okay, uh, uh, here's the thing. Uh, uh, honey, what, what are the five things I got to do to be a husband? And then when you're done with those five things, you all of a sudden turn off the husband button and go out and live like you're single again? Uh-uh, don't work like that. Doesn't work like that. There's no checklist here. You can't ever leave it. If you're married, you know what? You're always married. Now, it's different. Like if you're working for an employer, for example, that's a legal relationship. And so you got a checklist. Here's your job. Do your job. Once your job is done, you check it off. And now you're good to go. And you can live your life however you want. You've done the checklist. But see, if you're married, it doesn't work like that. I did my five things that are a duty of a husband and now I'm going to go out and live like I'm single or, 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 or what, what have you. It see, a marriage requires your all. It requires your all. You can do the checklist. It's sort of a one among many items in your life, but you can't do marriage like that. If you're married, you're, you're, all of you is married. And maybe there's a few spouses out there that need to hear that sermon. There's no off button to marriage. That means, you know, your finances now are brought into the marriage. Your opinions are brought into the marriage. Your habits are brought into the marriage. Your friends are brought into the marriage. Your families are brought into the marriage. It's all part of the deal. You got to work through that. And you just can't say, well, tonight I'm going to pretend like I'm single. You better not be doing that. Uh, you know, that's, that's a bad, you take the class if you're doing that kind of thing, okay? Our marriage class. It's a totally different mindset. You can do the checklist thing by saying, what's the minimum I need to get in on the deal? What's the things I must avoid to get out of the deal? But you can't do marriage like that. What's the minimal, you know, checklist stuff, I, honey, that I need in order to, for you to consider me to be your husband? Okay, just, just give me the, the, the real essentials. I'll do those, but then I'm going to go on my merry way. Uh-uh. Or if you're in the marriage, if you're living in the question like, can I lose my marriage, <laughs> like lose my salvation? What are the deal breaker things? Uh, you know, if I act like a jerk, are you going to divorce me? Oh, you won't? Okay, I'm going to act like a jerk. Uh, will you divorce me if I go out and spend all of our money? I'd never get your input on anything. Well, if you're going to still say married to me, well, I'm going to do it. You know, I want to get away with as much of my individual, you know, uh, single self as I can and do the minimum in the marriage. You know, if I, if I cheated on you, would you divorce me? Okay, no, you wouldn't? Okay, how about twice? If I did twice? How three times? Dude, you are, or ma'am, you're wrong way of thinking about things. You're treating your marriage like it was just some kind of a legal contract. You, gotta re you really need to take the, that class if that's the way you're thinking about things. In a marriage, if it's a marriage, you're not looking at how close to the edge can you get without being booted out. That's, that is completely the wrong way to be thinking about things. The issue rather is, how can we grow more in love? You're, you should be moving in the opposite direction. How can we become closer? How can our lives become intertwined? How can we become more submitted to one another? How can we serve each other better? How can we learn more about one another? You're growing in that direction. You're not seeing how close to the rim can you get before she kicks you out of the house. You see, it's a totally different mindset. If, if marriage was a legal contract, well then, yeah, that's what you do. But it's a covenant. What God wants with us is not a legal paradigm. You see how... Screw it up, the legal paradigm is. That's why Paul says it can't justify you. What he wants is a marriage paradigm. We're not asking the question, you know, what's the minimum to get in? What would I have to avoid to get out? And no, 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 no. It's breaking God's heart when we think like that. He's saying, well, you look at Calvary. Look, that is what I think about you. That is what I've done for you. I'm courting you. I'm asking, I'm proposing for you in marriage. Will you just trust my character and let's enter into a relationship? Because what God wants is a bride. And the bride maybe is really screwed up. We are. 
Our, our thinking maybe is sometimes really off. It is. Oh, we, we sometimes stumble and fall. We do. The bride is dirty. The, the, the dress is tattered. You know, we got a terrible reputation perhaps. We got a lot of crap going on. But he's madly in love with this bride. And if we'll just surrender to him and say, we can't do it on our own, have mercy on us, a sinner, we come into this humbly, we trust his character. It's all about trusting his character. God says, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll take her. In fact, I'll pay the ultimate price for that bride. On the auction block, no one else wants this bride. Jesus says, I'll take her. I'll die for her. Highest bidder. And see, and, and the minute that happens, the minute that happens, now he begins to clean us up, you see. Now, and and uh, we start to bear fruit way, way beyond anything we'd ever bear if we were doing it to check things off on a list, to make sure we got our eternal life uh, after we die. He wants a marriage relationship with us. Jesus says, you can't be my disciples if you have any, have any possessions. Luke 14. But he's not doing that as a checklist thing. He's doing that as a leave and cleave thing. What he's saying is, okay, here, if you're going to marry me, you can't, then I've I got to have your whole heart. And I don't want you to be chasing after other lovers. That's kind of what, what it means to be married. And the way it applies to this is you can't be getting your life from how cute you are and how much money you make and how much you own and how good you are at this or that or anything else. If it, to be married to God means we, we go to our Father and, and we, 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 we rely on him as our only source of life, worth, strength, happiness, hope, everything. We trust in his character. We submit to him. And we leave all the other gods behind, all the other idols behind. You close those doors in just the same way as when you get married, you close the door. You better close the door to all the other opportunities you had. Man, you could have married anybody in high school. I don't doubt that. Well, you know what? Now that you're married, shut those doors down. That's done. And so also to come to God is to say, I, you know what, I, I lose the world. I lose the world. I, I lose the goodness. I, I lose the evil. I, I shut that down, and now I'm relying on God as my one and only source of life because the truth is, is he is our one and only source of life. We may legally own things, but we're never to possess it because the minute we start possessing it, God knows that it starts possessing us, and that gets in the way of our marriage relationship. But this is why Jesus says, it's hard for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's hard. It's a little bit like maybe some guy, for example, who really liked to sleep around and was really good at that and that was the source of his life. Well, when he gets married, he's got to give all that up. Now, that's going to be a lot harder for him to do, maybe, than for a person who's never done that. I mean, maybe a person who just doesn't, doesn't feel that sexy at all. He's got a lot to give up. So also with the world, it's easy to give up everything when you don't have anything. But if you've got a lot, that's a little bit harder. And it could be the wealth of our possessions that's hard to give up. Or it can be, in the legal paradigm, the wealth of our goodness. We're so good at stuff. We're really good people, aren't we? And, and we maybe feel good about that, and we got the righteous points, and we're better than others, and we like the satisfaction of being better than others. And See, but that is also a false god that has to go. That's the danger of goodness. A false god that's got to go, just like the goodness of blessing, it's got to go as a source of life. You may still have things, most of Jesus' disciples did, but you don't own them, you don't possess them. You die to that. It'd be impossible for us to give it up on our own. Fortunately, it's not on our own. The Holy Spirit's working in our life, and with God, all things are possible. Our job is to yield to the Spirit and let it go. To cling to our God, our Creator, our Savior, as the one source of life, and to be transformed by His beauty. 
to get out of the silly merit legal game, get out of the perception of God as judge, wondering about the particulars of this or that thing, be overwhelmed by his beauty, captivated by his beauty, now committed to him because of his beauty and living in that kingdom life, coming under the reign of God. And now everything we do, we still do. We'll do more good works, more fruit. Yes, all of that will be there, but not as a checklist thing. It'll be there because that's who we are. We're married. And that forms now our core being. Leave and cleave. Now I'm going to end with an exercise, a spiritual exercise that I have found uh, very helpful in helping me leave the world so I may cleave to God. Uh, relinquishing things. Making sure I'm not getting life from things. Here's the deal. We're all going to die. You know that, I, I imagine. Uh, some of us before others, but we're all going to die. And what's weird is that we all know that, but we don't practice for it. We, we, we ought to be practicing this. You know how it is? If, if you don't practice things ahead of time, well, then they scare you. That's why most people are afraid of dying. There's a spiritual exercise that I call, quite morbidly, uh, rehearsing for death, the rehearsing for death prayer. And it's a great way to practice, you know, for, for death, it's also just a great way to become aware of maybe what is too important to us in this world. So here's how it goes. Would you close your eyes for a moment? Uh, and I want you to imagine right now that you just died. Maybe sometimes it helps to create a story around it. You were driving home from church and somebody hit you. Now you're dead. Or maybe it's a fatal disease or whatever. You, you, you just died. You really just died. Close your eyes and now the darkness just kind of represents the fact that the world is now dead to you and you are dead to the world. You are nothing here but pure soul. And realize in this moment that you have just lost everything. All that you owned is gone. Done. All relationships are gone. Your reputation means nothing. All the things you've done mean nothing. Your everything, your good looks, your sex appeal, your accomplishments are now done. There's nothingness except you now utterly, utterly, utterly naked, stripped of everything you ever relied on. And you come before your maker and your savior, Jesus Christ. knowing that everything's been stripped away. It's natural to have a sense of missing that. But ask yourself honestly the question, and Holy Spirit help us in this. Is your sense, your core sense of security and worth and confidence before God different now that you're dead than it was when you were still alive? Do you feel like your identity, your core identity is now different now that you're dead? Because this is in fact the state you're going to be at pretty soon. So let's prepare for it. Are you significantly different now that you're dead than you were when you were alive? And if you find that there's a vacuum there, you're feeling insecure, you're lacking confidence, it may be and probably is because you have been getting too much life from something in your life. You've been relying on something as a source of life. And don't beat yourself up for that. 
Just notice that and learn from it. And as you're standing there now, naked before God, nothing to rely on, no place to run, no place to hide. Just you and the core of you and Jesus. I want you to hear Jesus say, I have always loved you. My eyes have always been upon you. I have always delighted in you. Not in all that you did, but in you, you, you. And I am enough for you. Oh, I am enough for you. You don't need the shaky 401k plan to feel secure. I am enough for you. You don't need the approval of others. I am enough for you. You don't need to be impressing me with your accomplishments. I, my love, is enough for you. Receive it. Receive it. Drink deeply of it. I am your all in all. And as you're hearing this before God and seeing the face of Jesus Christ, just receive that truth. It is the core biblical truth. Receive that truth. And let it fill in the vacuum and, and feel the, the fullness, if you can, of how Jesus gives so much more security than the 401k plan ever could. And, and let him be your all in all. Just receive it. And then hear Jesus say, now go back into your body, because you're not dead yet. Go back and live this way. Live this way. This is what I meant, the Lord says, when I said, if you lose your life, you'll find it. It's no longer us that lives, but Christ who lives within us. We're to live as animated zombies. But what animates us is the fullness of life. Die to the world that we may live to God. Father, I just pray to God that you would help us to remember to practice this, to be rehearsing for death, so that when we in fact meet you, we've, we're not freaked out by that because we've been seeing you maybe every day of our life and been, pre been preparing for this. Help us to die to the world that we may live to you, to get all of our life and worth from you. God, help us to be freed from the, 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 the legal paradigm which trusts in the obedience to laws more, more than it trusts in your beautiful character. Make us your bride, Lord God, that sings and dances with you in celebrating who you are and the life you've given us now and throughout eternity. In Jesus' name. And all of God's bride people said amen and amen. Amen. I want you to dance. I want you to dance. Be married. Uh, with the prayer teams, come forward. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward. Or if you want to get married and submit your life to him, come forward here. And these folks would love to usher you into the kingdom. God bless you guys. Go out and dance.